In Alison Bechtel's new graphic novel, she charts her life through decades of fitness trends. She also offers the secret to superhuman strength, which is more about a state of being than it is about six-pack abs. Stop suffering and whining and just do it. Stop trying. Do it. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We talk with Bechtel about her new memoir and why she chose New England as home. And advocates are pushing colleges to put more Black-owned companies in charge of investments. We need people who are going to be change agents, who are going to actually have as a mandate how we're going to include others. We need champions. We need warriors. Plus, scholar activist Catherine Morris has witnessed environmental racism firsthand. I noticed you can see the smog in the air anytime I was driving anywhere, right? You, I saw the incinerator. It wasn't far from my home, probably only a couple of miles. It's Next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. Alison Bechtel is a popular American cartoonist. She's perhaps best known for her graphic memoir called Fun Home, a family tragicomic, which was later adapted into a Tony Award-winning musical. She's also a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant. Alison's new book is called The Secret to Superhuman Strength. It's about exercise and the new fitness trends Alison picks up with each decade. It's also about transcending. She pushes to excel as an athlete, cartoonist, and partner, and she tries to find a way past her ego and fear of death to a state of being. Allison joins us now from her home in Vermont. Welcome to Next. Hi. Thanks, Morgan. So I'm kind of embarrassed to say it took me a little while to realize that while this memoir is about exercise and the different trends and activities you've done over time, it's not exactly the main point of the book, right? <laughs> That's true. It, exercise ended up being sort of a a lens or a way in for me to talk about stuff that is uh, a little less concrete. I've always loved exercise, but not just for the physical benefits and the you know the physical experience, but because of the way it calms my mind down and the way it gives me a glimpse of um, just getting outside of my self and quieting down my noisy brain. Yeah, and it seems like it's like exercise in the book was like the house, the structure, and then inside were all these other questions that you were wrestling with, like how you relate to other people, uh, your purpose in life, and then like your spiritual and creative process. I do want to talk about exercise, though. We're going to talk about the other things. But um, okay. one of the things that's interesting about the exercise trends that span your life is that we get this sense of like exercise trends as a whole. When you were a kid, what did exercise look like in the 60s? It looked very different than it does now. Um, when I was a kid growing up in central Pennsylvania, there just was nothing like what children have today. Certainly not for girls. And even for boys, there was not much beyond Little League. We were, we were just left to our own devices for long swaths of time. But that was all starting to change when I was a kid. You know, exercise really wasn't something p- 
people did before around the time I was born. I was born in 1960. You know, people used to just do stuff. They would, you know, wring their clothes through their wringer washer or they'd go <laughs> harpoon things. Um, they didn't need to get exercise as a separate activity. So that's kind of a modern phenomenon. And it's kind of paralleled my lifespan. And as exercise came along, I started doing it. Yeah, you started running as a kid, and it didn't sound like anyone else really around you was doing that. So what did your family and neighbors think? They thought I was nuts. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I lived in a small farming town, and I'd go running out into the fields, and these farmers would see me, and they just did not know what I was doing. People would tease me and harass me, and people didn't do that. Certainly, girls didn't do that on their own back then. Mm. Yeah, there were there were weren't even sports bras, right? I, I remember right. you saying that in the book. Oh my god! Yeah, I had to wear these like flimsy little everyday bras from Sears. That was not good. Yeah, the sports bra was not invented until the eighties. That's incredible. Let's that, just all have really... a, a moment of thanks for the, yes. the women who invented that thing. Yeah, so grateful. And so then, as you're doing research into the history, that was the backdrop of your life, and you kind of get this bird's eye view of these trends that you're a part of, what was that like? It was, it was interesting. I, you know, as a, as a memoirist, as someone who writes about my own life, I'm always kind of looking over my own record, looking at my, my diary and my, my teenage diaries and sort of uh, trying to zoom out from that and see if there are patterns, see what kind of larger narrative there might be. And so it was kind of cool, see, you know, seeing the way the culture touched my personal life and the way I was participating in these things, along with everyone else who was jogging and doing martial arts and, and doing yoga back in the day before we had a yoga studio on every corner. I want to talk about death. Um, you've got this great sentence in the book. You write, the thing about changing your life is that change means moving on and moving on leads essentially to one place, the grave. And, you know, I just I found myself wondering throughout reading and looking at your amazing images, like how much were you consciously thinking about death and avoiding it during all of these different exercise phases you went through? Well, I think about death kind of a lot, maybe slightly more than the average person having grown up in a funeral home. <laughs> I've known for a long time that almost all of my anxieties, all of anyone's anxieties, can pretty much be boiled down to fear of death. Like, that's at the bottom of everything. So I do feel like it would be nice to sort of come to terms with that so it wasn't always lurking there and taking your energy and, you know, causing anxiety. I don't know how well that's going. It's, you know, it's a lifelong project. So you weren't, but you weren't thinking like, okay, I got to just like run one more mile because I'll live X minutes longer. No, I'm not that hardcore. I, I, I sort of give the impression of myself as a driven maniac, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm not, I do, I exercise because I really love it. You know, I'm not going out there and hating it. If I hated it, I wouldn't do it. I, I want to, if I have any message that I'm trying to impart with this book. It's that exercise should be done only for the pleasure of it and not for any other reason or it's just not fun. 
Yeah, in terms of death, it seems like uh, your spiritual work is kind of working to accept death and suffering. And what pushed you to be like, okay, I've got to be okay with this death thing? You know, can I just say, I feel sort of ridiculous talking about about death in the abstract. You know, I have I have a lot of friends who are actually facing death, who are ill. And I've just been thinking about how idiotic <laughs> I sound rattling on about, you know, mortality when it's it's really not something I am immediately grappling with. I, I do want to understand it. I do want to come to terms with it. But um, it's very different to do that intellectually than for people who are actually facing real death. I mean, like imminent death. Yeah, has that made you feel like, well, I, I guess I'll ask you first, do you think like I'm misunderstanding what you were wrestling with as a part of the book? Or has has your feelings about your own writing changed as as you've like, been like, what well, there, you know, I have friends who are wrestling with this right now. No, it, you, you understood the book properly. It's only since I've been out talking about the book, that I'm starting to realize there's, I sound kind of glib in the way I'm talking about death when it's, it's not a simple abstract idea. It's, it's a real thing. Hmm. My guest is cartoonist Alison Bechtel. She created the graphic memoir Fun Home, which was adapted into a Tony Award-winning musical. Today we're talking about her new book, The Secret to Superhuman Strength, which came out this month. Alison, I want to talk a bit about Vermont and New England. Now, you moved to Vermont after you got a fan letter. Share the story behind that fan letter and what brought you suddenly to Vermont. Oh, dear. I have sort of been fascinated with New England since I was a teenager. It always just seemed like an amazing place. I kind of knew I wanted to live there. I loved the idea that it was colder and there was lots of snow and that and I did attend college in Western Massachusetts for two years. But then I went other places. I went to the Midwest. And I was living in Minneapolis in 1990 when I got a fan letter from someone who had read one of my cartoon books. And I we started this flirtation. And within like a few months, I had actually moved to Vermont, because partly because I was genuinely interested in this woman. But also, the idea of, of Vermont really beckoned. I, I, I loved the Twin Cities, but I didn't like living out on the prairie where it was so flat. I didn't see mountains ever, and that really bothered me. So I moved to Vermont, which has got mountains built right into its very name. You capture this moment when you're, I think you're a teenager, you're flipping through a 1976 L.L. Bean catalog, and you write in the book... Um, that you found, quote, a dimension called New England. <laughs> and I read that and I was like, whoa, dimension, that's a big <laughs> word. Um, <laughs> but that you're kind of capturing that in what you're saying, like you just had this, you felt this draw and you had this idea of what New England represented. I, I did. And it was largely due to L.L. Bean, as you pointed out. It just seemed kind of magical to me. I don't, I don't know why. Has it maintained its magic for you? It has, and then some. I love living in Vermont. In fact, when I got here, that crazy long-distance relationship 
as you might expect, did not really work out. But I was so happy to be in Vermont that I, I stayed here and I've been here ever since. Eventually, you meet Holly. And I just got to say, it's hard to read this book and not love Holly. <laughs> um, I may be over glorifying here, but there was, it's almost like she helped save you from yourself. Maybe that's not quite right. Maybe no, it's that you were in a... You I think, think that's, that's right. True. Really? Say more about that. So Holly is very in touch with her own joy. And she's, you know, she keeps trying to get me to also just have more joy in my life and stop struggling so much with everything. So that's been a really good influence. It's been also hard because I'm so used to struggling and sometimes it it feels annoying to have someone tell you to stop struggling. <laughs> but um, over the years, uh, sh- yeah, she has definitely helped me to just be happier and more positive in my life. And I understand it took you about eight years to write this book and that a lot of the drawing happened in the past year. And a lot of help came from Holly. She would fill in the colors in your drawings. What was that like to reach this point where you're now sharing this process together? You know, it was really fun. It was challenging, too, because I'm not used to collaborating. I'm used to doing everything myself. But I was really lucky to have her help on this project. You know, she's an artist. She was able to pitch in and do this quite um, intense work binge with me. Um, where she was, yeah, coloring as I was inking. And that's what we did during the pandemic, which was kind of cool. You know, the world was going to hell in a handbasket, but we had this project we were both super focused on, which actually was fun. So I wasn't like feeling the the anxiety and dread that I think a lot of people were feeling during COVID. I was just kind of happily working away with Holly. You know, through a lot of the book, the feeling I was maybe getting through your writing was struggling to find balance in in many different aspects of your life. But then once we get to the last few years, it it just starts to feel more peaceful. And then even more so during the pandemic, do you feel like that's an accurate characterization? I do. And, you know, it was sort of I'm writing about my actual life as it's unfolding, which is a curious exercise. And of course, I want the book to end on a positive note. I want to, you know, I'm writing a book about transcendence and, you know, getting beyond the self and being in the flow. So I was kind of setting myself up to try and make that happen. Part of the trick about all these things, though, is that you can't make transcendence happen. You can't make yourself feel, you know, grief or love, those things, you have to allow them to happen. And I do think I started to let that stuff happen. I do think I moved through something, you know, that I, I did get to an easier relationship with my creativity. And with, you know, just my, the way I live my life. Yeah, you say, right toward the end, the only thing to transcend is the idea that there's something to transcend, which seems to capture just what you were talking about. Yeah. I mean, this all sounds sort of trite when you say it, you know, it's all about being in the present moment. We, we know that intellectually, but to really 
feel that is it's a transformative experience and it's not like you can always stay in that state it's you know you're lucky if you can be in the present moment for one second but i do think that's where the yeah that's ultimately what i discovered I've got one more question for you, and it's maybe a little cheesy, um, but you did call the book The Secret to Superhuman Strength, so I'm wondering, have you discovered the secret? (laughs) Well, you know, it's kind of what we were just talking about. In fact, (laughs) my book is launching on May the 4th. I think that's a a felicitous date because it's Star Wars Day. May the fourth be with you. And <laughs> I always, I've been thinking about the thing Yoda says. You know, Yoda says, um, there is no try, only do. Or if you would rather have a advertising slogan, just do it, you know? <laughs> Stop suffering and whining and just do it. Stop trying, do it. Alison Bechtel's new novel is The Secret to Superhuman Strength. She's the author of the popular book, Fun Home. Allison, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks, Morgan. Coming up. In the push for racial equity, advocates ask local colleges to consider their billion-dollar endowments and who's investing, plus the health effects of anti-Asian violence. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. It's common practice for wealthy private colleges around New England to invest billions of dollars from their endowments to make them grow. GBH Radio in Boston wanted to know how much of that money goes to financial firms owned by black and brown people. But the Massachusetts schools they contacted wouldn't tell them. From the higher ed desk, Kurt Carapeza reports, advocates are pushing colleges to diversify their investment strategies. Speaking via Zoom from his home in Evanston, Illinois, retired Harvard Business School professor Stephen Rogers proudly describes himself as a race man. What do you mean by that? I've always pushed the participation of white companies, white organizations to share their wealth with Black-owned businesses. So with that in mind, I felt compelled to expect and, and encourage my alma mater to do the same. Rogers graduated from Williams College in 1979. More recently, in the early 2000s, he served as a trustee at Williams for five years. That's when he says he repeatedly urged the chairman of the college's finance committee to invest at least some endowment dollars in Black-owned asset managers. And I met with him, went to his office, gave him an actual list of 50 Black-owned financial services firms. I gave him the whole pitch that Black financial services firms were providing market rate returns, that this was not a charity program. And what was the result? 
he uh, basically engaged in passive aggressive behavior and did nothing probably for a year. And finally, my frustration got to me such that I announced at the trustee meeting that I was going to resign. Only then, Rogers says, did the chairman of the board step in and say he'd take care of it. A few weeks later, we hired our first black financial services manager. This spring, as the country undergoes a racial reckoning, GBH News surveyed Williams and 10 other colleges in Massachusetts with large endowments. We asked for the number of asset managers they invest in who are black or brown. None of the private schools would disclose that information. Together, they have endowments topping nearly $80 billion and all profess diversity, equity, and inclusion as core values. A spokesperson for Williams College wrote in an email that, quote, there isn't much of an appetite in participating at this time. Only Harvard and MIT provided any data, but they lumped together people of color with women and veterans. Others simply said they don't have the information on hand. They have it. They're not ready to talk about it. Robert Raven runs the Diverse Asset Managers Initiative in D.C. He says finance is one of the few industries in modern-day America where leaders still say publicly that race doesn't matter. The conventional wisdom is that if you have good returns, of course we'll work with you. And we sort of poked at that premise and said, well, there's plenty of people of color and women with great returns. Why aren't you working with them? Raven says he sees structural racism and a networking problem because white men own nearly 99% of asset management companies. It's a very, very, very parochial sector of the American economy. The number of asset managers themselves is rather small, and they travel together. And the white men who dominate the field don't have great exposure to people of color who are doing well in the field. Last summer, after the killing of George Floyd, Raven convinced former Congressman Joe Kennedy III to send a letter to the 25 universities in the U.S. with the largest endowments, totaling hundreds of billions of dollars. Kennedy agreed and requested information about how that money was invested, who was managing it, and whether or not those investments were reflective of the values of diversity that those very same educational institutions had promised and protected when it comes to their admitting class. And what did you learn? That they're not. There's a degree of variability amongst uh, those institutions about how aggressively they're, they are trying to address this lack of diversity in their investment portfolios. But the bottom line is that this has not been a priority and it's reflective in the statistics. Kennedy acknowledges part of the problem is that there are not nearly enough people of color in money management positions. College leaders are entering this debate cautiously. If we want to promote a certain social justice vision of how our assets are managed, let's do that in a more comprehensive way. Vincent Rougeau is the dean of Boston College's law school and the incoming president of the College of the Holy Cross, which also would not tell us the number of black and brown-led asset firms it invests in. In July, Rougeau will become the first black president of the Jesuit College in Worcester, and he says he's open to reconsidering how the college's assets are managed, but he expresses some skepticism about potential impact. It's not like you could flick a switch and change, you know, the structure of who manages money in this country. And you don't want to put yourself in a position where you're trying to do something where the resources or the people just aren't even there yet. Advocates like former Harvard Business School professor and Williams College trustee Stephen Rogers disagree with that perspective. When you have a problem, you don't try to eat the entire apple. You take bites of it. Rogers says when it comes to diversity and equity, 
token investments are not enough. We need people who are going to be change agents, who are going to actually have as a mandate how we're going to include others. We need champions. We need warriors. In 2011, Rogers was teaching business at Northwestern when Harvard Law professor Charles Ogletree invited him to join a group of five black faculty members who wanted to make a pitch to Harvard similar to the one he had made years earlier at Williams. Prior to our meeting, the other four said, Steve, you're our Johnny Cochran. You make our case. Their case was to convince Harvard's chief investment officer to place a billion dollars from the school's $30 billion endowment with black investment firms. I'm real big on helping black businesses get access to capital in this particular instance, but not just simply for the symbolism of a black business, because black-owned companies hire black people. Black-owned companies, they send philanthropic dollars to the black community. So for me, it's a means to an end. After he made the pitch, Rogers says the chief investment officer looked at him sideways. He said, you're trying to get me fired. Wow, that's a lot. And I said, actually, I'm trying to get you promoted. (laughs) Rogers says he doesn't know what the outcome was, but if schools like Holy Cross, Williams, and Harvard are going to preach inclusion, he suggests they should embrace monetary inclusion as well. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Kirk Carapeza. Cities around New England have declared racism a public health crisis. Today, we're digging into its connection to environmental justice with Catherine Morris. Kat is a scholar activist focusing on environmental justice. She's also graduating with a master's in public policy from the University of Connecticut this month. In a TEDx talk last fall, Kat described how environmental racism has affected her home state. Connecticut is not exempt from this, as one-fifth of the entire state's pollution is located in Bridgeport, Hartford, New Haven, Stamford, and Waterbury. The five out of 169 municipalities where 71% of all the state's people of color live. Bridgeport and Hartford, two of my hometowns, have the largest and second largest incinerators, yet I remember struggling to find a good grocery store and healthy food. So Kat, what you're talking about in your TEDx talk is environmental racism. And you mentioned growing up in two of those five cities in Connecticut. I'm wondering, did you have a sense as a kid or a teenager that you were living in a place that had more pollution than other towns and cities nearby? Yeah, I'd say the thing is I've moved a lot of times in my life, so I've been able to see what that looks like in practice and what it looks like when that's not the case. So when I first moved to Connecticut, I'm originally from New Jersey, I lived in Ansonia and then Trumbull. And there's a lot of greenery there. There's no difficulty in accessing a stop and shop or a shop right. So once I moved to Bridgeport, I noticed there was a lot more litter on the ground. I noticed you can see the smog in the air anytime I was driving anywhere, right? You, I saw the incinerator. It wasn't far from my home, probably only a couple of miles. And I noticed that we couldn't swim in Seaside Park, which is probably one of the most beautiful places in this state. But it's heavily polluted, so much so that there would be days where they banned us from swimming in the water. And I also noticed that a lot of my friends had asthma. And I live in Hartford now, 
and I see the same things over and over again, right? And it's it's something that I can't ignore anymore, especially after going to school and being really invested in solving the problem and doing the research to understand just how prevalent of an issue it is in Connecticut and also across the country has made it kind of impossible for me to like not focus very heavily on it and try my best to do what I can. New England cities like Boston, Burlington, Vermont, and New Haven, Connecticut, just to name a few, have made official recognitions declaring racism a public health crisis. And Vermont and also your home state of Connecticut are considering bills right now to do that. Now, making this declaration is one thing. I think making real structural change is another. So when it comes to environmental justice and health, what are some practical policies that can help? <laughs> yeah, there's so many different ways to go about this. In terms of green spaces specifically, it looks like making sure that you're cleaning up pollution, making it so that we don't have um, excess waste in our water bodies specifically um, that are polluted illegally or legally, unfortunately. Uh, it also looks like planting more trees because as you plant more trees, you're developing your tree canopy in a way that helps you block out the increasing heat from the sun, right? As we know with climate change, where our planet is just getting hotter. And as our planet overall is getting hotter, areas that are cities are more likely to have a lot of asphalt, right? And so that kind of just additionally heats the city in a way that makes those communities more likely to have asthma attacks like we discussed before, but also heat strokes. There is a way to strategically address climate change and address environmental justice. And as an activist, you advocate love, capital L-O-B-E, to tackle climate change. Can you explain what you mean? Yeah. So personally, I think love or radical love specifically entails accountability and responsibility as much as it entails compassion and empathy. It also makes dehumanization and the devaluation of life overall, not just human life, but plant life um, and animal life. It makes it impossible. So when I talk about love, I mean it in that sense, but in an organizing space, I think of it as an acronym. So L as in listen to learn. No single person has all the answers. I don't have all the answers. So I actively listen to other people to learn from them. Uh, and that develops a collective genius and a way that seeing the world and seeing solutions is super innovative and resilient. O, organize with an open mind. We need to get clear on the goal of eliminating environmental racism and effectively addressing climate change. But there's no one way to do that. So we need to think outside the box and get really intentional in terms of what we know needs to happen and how we can make it happen in the way that's most equitable. V, value a variety of perspectives. So in that similar vein, I hold intersectionality as a foundation for my activism because I know that it's powerful. But I also know that with that, I need to take the steps of educating myself and the people that I work with, right? I need to be able to check myself as much as I check other people. Um, holding everyone accountable is the only way to like really grow beyond yourself and your ego. 
And E, engage everyone in every way possible. Reach out to everyone and from all walks of life. So you have to be mindful of how their time, right, if they're a working person, or how their ability or language barriers may serve as um, ways that make your form of activism inaccessible. And so you can't do that. You have to be really intentional and think ahead of time to make sure that you are inclusive in your fight for justice. So that's love to me. So listen to learn, organize with an open mind, value a variety of perspectives and engage everyone in every way possible. Yeah, I mean, for some people in the face of environmental racism, structural racism, I imagine it could feel hard to love both in terms of the acronym and in terms of the emotion. Yeah, but you know, with that, I'd say you still need to choose self-love. And I think when you do that, it makes it easier to love other people because there's a level of patience and <laughs> maybe flexibility that comes with that. You have to like humanize people on all sides of things. That doesn't mean you need to endure violence or engage with people who really only care about harming you. That's not what I'm asking anyone to do, because that would not be choosing self-love. But it is a matter of understanding that we're all existing in this shared ecosystem, and there's no way that we're going to um, not do that, right? So we have to rely on each other, because no matter what, we are interdependent. So we can't do anything alone. So unfortunately, although it might be hard to kind of choose love and and really practice that in a way that is impactful, it's necessary and I think it's worthwhile. That was Catherine Morris, a scholar activist in environmental justice who just wrapped up a master's of public policy at UConn. Scientists are only just beginning to understand the health effects of racial violence against Asian Americans. To date, there's little research on this. A recent wave of anti-Asian violence has been triggering for many Asian Americans, causing them to recall their own experiences of racism and making them fearful for themselves and their families. WBUR's Angus Chen reports. And a warning, this story contains descriptions of racism that may be upsetting and language that some may find offensive. There's a certain you know, dread that I have. It's in my head. It's in my gut. Even when I go to the supermarket or I walk down the street. Lisa Wong finds it difficult to go about her daily life without fear. There's a sense of, is somebody going to do something, say something? Because it does happen. With every new attack on Asians, she wonders if she or someone she loves will be next. Just going out these days feels like an act of self-defense. My dad wanted to go get fish at Chinatown, and I didn't want him to go alone. So, you know, my brother and I went with him. He disappeared around the corner. We didn't see him. I felt that fear. I really did. On March 16th, Wong felt her fear amplify. A white man had shot and killed six Asian women and two other people inside spas in the Atlanta area. They died just going to work or getting a massage because they were Asians in Asian-owned spas. 
That's how racialized violence can harm people who share an identity, even if they're far from the scene of the crime. Doris Chang is a professor of psychology at New York University. She and her 11-year-old son were looking at news reports about the victims of the spa shootings. My son looked at a picture and he said, "That looks like Apua, which is my mother." And so it was, you know, really, really personal, and um, you know, hard not to personalize it as something that could have happened to anybody um, in my family, um, something that could have happened to anybody that I know. At the same time, Chang wondered if this incident, like so many others, would just get swept away. She says a lack of recognition of the racism and racial violence against Asians has been an added source of harm, and she worried the Asian American community would have to keep facing this alone. Are people actually going to um, see how traumatic and disturbing this is going to be for me and for people who identify as Asian American? That was really the first question, and and I really didn't know. Most research on the health effects of racial violence has focused on Black and white people. These studies suggest when people of color observe or learn about racial violence against members of their race, they experience more stress and worse mental health. But Chang says there isn't a lot of research on the Asian American experience of racial trauma. From 1992 to 2018, only 0.17 percent of national institutes of health funding went to studying Asian, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander Americans. As a result, we tend to be more invisible, more marginalized in those conversations, and so there's so much we don't know about the lived experiences of Asian Americans and the factors that predict health and well-being for this group. In particular, research may have a blind spot toward Asian mental health. In mental health surveys from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Asians report low levels of anxiety, depression, and use of mental health care. But Chang's working on a study now that surveyed about 700 Asian Americans about anti-Asian hate incidents. At least 40 percent of participants reported one or more incidents of in-person racism over the last year, including verbal harassment and physical assault. Chang says her study shows those incidents harmed participants' mental health, and that these experiences are far more widespread than the few thousand recorded by advocates over the last year. To see that 40 percent of our sample were reporting similar. Things shows us how underreported these events really are, how pervasive they are across our community, and that they're they're happening to to many many more of us than are actually reporting it. One reason why the issue is so underreported is racism itself. Psychologist Jenny Wang says the stereotype that Asians are passive and don't want to rock the boat isn't cultural. It's because American society has often suppressed Asian voices. The problem is that. When we speak up and it's silenced, we then internalize this message that my action of speaking up has no effect. Wang says that silencing can have terrible health consequences. I have seen this play out clinically in that a lot of my clients、um, really struggle with advocating for themselves, speaking up for themselves, expressing their emotions, being vulnerable. And it can be a struggle to talk about personal experiences of hate. Last July, Lisa Wong was leading a Zoom meeting for the town of Winchester. Of stormwater. A city commissioner was talking about stormwater management when he suddenly stopped short. What in God's name is going on on your Zoom right now? Racial slurs appeared on the screen. Someone had hijacked the presentation and began flashing white supremacist images and shrieking in a distorted voice. As a warning, you're about to hear some disturbing language and racial slurs. 
If you need to take children out of the room or turn off the radio, you should do it now. White power! White power! Cable kinks. White power. Lisa Wong. Lisa Wong. Lisa Wong, you're a chink! You know, that slur, the way he said it, stayed in my mind for about five months before I started to talk about it. This is Lisa Wong again. I was so shocked that I couldn't consciously think of that event without breaking down. When Wong finally started talking about the Zoom bombing, she asked others who had been on the call what they remembered about it. I was sort of hearing things like, no, no, you weren't the target. No, no, I didn't hear that. That didn't happen. (laughs) And then to start to talk about it as part of my healing process and to get denied or gaslit was equally, if not more, traumatizing. In the days after the Atlanta mass shooting, that sense of being ignored hung over Wong like a shroud. The shooting, the broader reactions to it, kicked up her memories of the Zoom bombing. An Atlanta police official said the department couldn't determine if the shootings were racially motivated because the shooter said they weren't. The morning after the shootings, she took the day off. The stress and the harm is happening at a faster rate than we can process. As we're processing what happened in Atlanta, I think we're also processing everything else because it's all catching up to us. Many Asian Americans have thought if we just worked really hard and stayed silent, that would overcome anti-Asian racism in America. But a year of racial violence, capped off with the murders of six Asian women, shattered the idea that Asians could pass through America unnoticed but safe. Now, Wong is speaking out. Part of me feels like I just, I just want to disappear. Just like I think if we just put our head down and work hard, they will go away, they won't happen. But it's pretty clear that being silent is not going to keep me safe. It's not going to keep my daughter safe. So Wong and others are unlearning decades of silence. Like her, many Asians are speaking at rallies to stop anti-Asian hate, starting conversations about it, and reporting crimes and incidents to the media and police. Some demonstrations have had thousands of protesters in attendance. Wong worries the spotlight will fade before real change can happen. But she says using her voice has been meaningful. That is powerful. It's powerful to be seen. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Angus Chen. After the break, how the pandemic lockdown changed the way Boston pianist Yoko Miwa produced her latest album. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. Boston pianist Yoko Miwa recorded her trio's new album, Songs of Joy, during the pandemic. WBUR's Andrea Shea reports on how being in lockdown changed the way Miwa produced her new release. 
Like so many musicians, Yoko Miwa was crushed when the pandemic erased her slate of concerts and regular weekend gigs at two local restaurants. But the acclaimed jazz pianist decided she had to keep performing live for audiences, even if it was only on Facebook. Hello, everybody. Welcome to my studio in Boston. So nice to see you again. Basically, I did live streaming from my room from March to August. Every weekend, I didn't skip, even on my birthday. (laughs) But I didn't know this is going to last this long. Miwa had a lot of time on her hands in lockdown, and she really needed to do something positive to escape her sadness. Her scheduled tour and album were delayed, but she also lost her father, who lived far away in Japan, to Alzheimer's disease. So Miwa, who's been playing with her jazz trio for 15 years, started practicing classical music again, and she created a goal for herself. I started composing one song a day. I got five new originals from doing that in my new album. This is Inside a Dream, one of Miwa's five compositions on her trio's new optimistically titled release, Songs of Joy. The name honors session keyboardist Billy Preston, who backed artists including Little Richard and the Beatles. Here's Miwa's version of Preston's 1975 tune, Song of Joy. Tracks on Miwa's album are a mix of her own creations and interpretations of other musicians' songs that have given her comfort and inspiration over the past year. During this pandemic, something helping me is music. Playing music or listening to music or learning new music. I cannot live without music. Miwa started studying classical piano as a kid. She eventually won a scholarship to Berklee College of Music in 1997. Now, 20 years later, Miwa teaches piano there. I feel very lucky. I have something I love to do. That's also my job. On her new album, Miwa pays homage to her teachers, colleagues, and idols, including piano hero Thelonious Monk. She also puts her own jazzy spin on the 1950s song, Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You, which was made famous by Led Zeppelin. The album's 11 songs travel through Miwa's emotional ups and downs. She wrote a ballad called The Lonely Hours for her now-gone father, who was isolated during many of his final days because of pandemic restrictions.
It Lifted Me Was Spirits when her album hit number one on the Jazz Week jazz charts after a very hard year made even harder by not being able to play live for so long. Especially as a jazz musician, it's very, very important to keep performing in front of audiences because that feeds our soul, of course, but also it's necessary in order to improve our artistry. So we miss it very much. We need it. Like her album, Miwa is embracing positivity. She's been focusing on practicing and learning, so she'll be ready when her trio can finally be together again with an in-person audience. She hopes that happens soon. But even with restrictions eased for local music venues, Miwa says she still doesn't have any live shows on the books. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Andrea Shea. And that's our show this week. You can find past episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer, and Lily Tyson. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. And if you want to know who you heard today, just visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Public's Radio. 